Thank you for coming out. Welcome. My name is Dubs Weinblatt. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I am so excited to present to you this episode. In partnership with the Marlene Myers and JCC Manhattan, Thank You For Coming Out is co-hosting their LGBTQ author summer series of conversations. And uh, we've already had two, but there will be more coming up. So make sure you check out Thank You For Coming Out's Instagram at Thank You For Coming Out. And you could attend live virtually at our next conversation. Hope you enjoy. Thank you for coming. Good evening, and welcome to the virtual Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan. I'm Jason Blitman. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm the program director for the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. And on behalf of my colleagues in the Joseph Stern Center for Social Responsibility and out at the J here at the JCC, who are my partners on tonight's program, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the first event in our Summer Pride series. Thank you for coming out at the J tonight with John Paul Brammer and his book, Hola Papi. We're so thrilled that he's joining us tonight for his very first event on his book tour. The book is officially published next week on June 8th. If you haven't pre-ordered your copy of Hola Papi, a limited number of signed copies are available from our friends at The Strand, exclusively for attendees of Thank You for Coming Out at the J. Please note MMJCCM in the order comment section to receive an autographed book plate with your purchase of the book. We hope you'll join us for other events at the JCC, including the next in this series on June 24th, featuring Dr. Francois Clemens, best known for his role as Officer Clemens on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Conversations at the JCC are made possible by Zabars and Zabars.com, and virtual programs for the Lambert Center are made possible by the generous support of the Lori M. Tisch Illumination Fund. There should be time for questions at the end, so please feel free to write any questions you may have in the Q&A at the bottom of your screen. And now it is my pleasure to introduce to you Dubs Weinblatt, who we're thrilled to be partnering with on this whole series. Dubs is the founder and executive producer of Thank You For Coming Out, which celebrates the LGBTQIA community by showcasing queer stories and identities through a podcast, improv, and storytelling. They are the co-founder and executive producer of Craft for Youth, an organization that encourages LGBTQ folks to use performance art as a way to express their stories and connect with their community. Dubs is also the Associate Director of Education and Training for Metro New York at Keshet and was recently named one of Logo's new now next six inspiring LGBTQ Jewish activists you should be following. So make sure to follow Dubs. Please welcome Dubs Weinblatt. Thank you for that lovely introduction that I wrote for myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And now I am so excited to now take the baton and to introduce our guest for the evening. Uh, John Paul Brammer, he, him, his, is an author, illustrator, and columnist from rural Oklahoma, currently living in Brooklyn. He runs the popular advice column, Ola Poppy, on his Substack. Get your pencils, olapoppy.substack.com. which is syndicated in New York Magazine's The Cut. His work, including essays, short fiction, and illustrations, have appeared in The Washington Post, Food & Wine, Catapult, Business Insider, and many more. Hola, Poppy is his first book, which I devoured. John Paul, welcome. Hi, Dubs. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. How are you doing today? 
how am I doing today? Um, talked a little bit about this. I had a nightmare travel situation yesterday. Uh, got to the airport at 9 a.m. in Los Angeles and got to New York at 9 a.m. today. <laughs> so oh, that is it's like you know we don't travel for over a year and then we travel and this happens that's exactly it I'm like did I really miss this this was my big trip post being vaccinated and I was like god I can't wait and then all of a sudden I was reintroduced to every single thing I hate about leaving my apartment in rapid succession (laughs) (laughs) I feel the same way when I was I was riding the train and I was like oh and people are like spreading out and not taking their bags off and standing too close and I was like oh I didn't miss this at all (laughs) yeah I like woke up on the plane my contacts were glued to my eyeballs which is why I'm wearing glasses not just because I wanted to match with you which obviously (laughs) is just an added benefit but Mm. I do feel um pretty smart and literate right now so maybe this is just a permanent author look for me now it might just be a blessing in disguise (laughs) yeah I mean you definitely look very smart and very (laughs) (laughs) um all right so we all have multiple coming out stories and so I invite you to please share one of yours with us Yes. So um, I mentioned it in the book, but probably my favorite coming out story of mine. um, It's not when I came out to my parents, because that was pretty anticlimactic. Uh, The fun thing was when I was at the University of Oklahoma, I had actually never tried Adderall before. And one of my friends was like, do you want to try this? And I was just like, not really, but sure, why not? And I took one and I immediately, for some reason, my brain even though I had come out to basically no one yet, I was like, I have to tell everyone I'm friends with on Facebook right now that I'm gay. So I just like got on Facebook messenger and I was like, Hey Chad, I'm gay. Hey Becky, I'm gay. Just like (laughs) one after the other. Like it was a very bureaucratic sort of like rubber stamping around. Like make sure everyone's notified, make sure everyone has the updated information on my identity. Um, It was, it was quite a memorable, memorable evening for me. Uh, I've never, I've never done Adderall since then. (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, it it was formative. (laughs) Yeah. So how, how did people respond to you when you seemingly out of the blue Facebook message folks and told them that? Well, you know, I'm from the farm. So I was wondering how people in my hometown would react to this information because um, I, it's also in my book that there were a lot of people in my hometown who were not just homophobic, but violently homophobic, like homophobic to the point that they would be willing to physically hurt you if they knew that you were gay. Um, Obviously, though, I'm not friends with those people on Facebook. And so actually, the response I got from um, the people in my hometown who I never even considered would be accepting of me was actually really positive. And it made me rethink kind of everything, because all along, I thought, you know, my rural environment is the bad place. and I need to get out of here as soon as I can no one here likes me, no one here will accept me. Uh, It's a really popular narrative. Um, If you grew up in a rural environment and you can tell that you're queer in some way, and you're just like, God, I have to get out of here as soon as possible. But I was there, which means there were probably more people like me there. And there were probably people related to those people and who were friends to those people. And I discovered that um, that evening. And it was very therapeutic for me because I didn't want to go the rest of my life believing that my hometown was this god-awful place that I had to crawl my way out of, you know? It's nice to be affirmed by the people in the place where you grew up yeah um well I don't want to I'm trying to like navigate not spoiling things in the book but also (laughs) responding to what you're saying and so I'll say we learn that there are that you are not the only queer person gay person from your hometown um and it is a turn of events so everyone order your book now (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I think about that all the time as a transgender person, as a genderqueer person. I grew up in a really small town in Columbus, Ohio. So not quite, quite rural, but not New York City by any means. Um, and I think about that all the time of like really wanting to be affirmed by the people who I grew up with and sometimes feeling like immense anxiety going back home. And yeah. like, will I be accepted? And then it's like, I don't know, I live in New York. Who cares if I'm not accepted <laughs> here? But but there is that feeling of, why don't people like me? Yeah, and <laughs> it's, it's hard to shake that feeling of home, you know? Like when yeah. things in New York get complicated and your train gets stuck between the tunnel and you think that things have gotten way too complicated up here in city life, my brain anyway tends to wander back to where I'm from. And I want that to be a warm feeling and I want that to be a comforting thought. And you don't want to think of it as the place that caused you all this harm and that doesn't want you. You want, you want your home to want you back. Um, and it's yeah. really important to me. That's why I try not to badmouth it too much when I'm like in mixed company. When I'm there, I'll talk all kinds of shit about it. Like I, if I'm with mm-hmm. my like, high school friend, I'll be like, yeah, this place sucks. But when I'm um, up in New York or I'm in a new job or something, I, I do my best to be like, yeah, this is where I'm from and I'm proud. <laughs> it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think what I what I really appreciate about a lot of what you write and what you're also doing now is the art of reframing mm. and the art of um, just taking what could potentially be something that's really painful or really awful and finding a way to think about it in a way that's more helpful and warm and affirming. And I just I really love that about, I don't know you, but I love that about you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think that one thing that, the Olapapi advice column has made me think a lot about over the years is where do my powers and abilities sort of begin and end to help people. And honestly, as human beings, most of us are quite limited. And so this book isn't me saying like, here's the solution to all my problems than how I overcame them. The book has more of a thesis and more of a central thing it's trying to say, which is that we are agents in the stories we tell ourselves. And those stories tend to dictate how we think about ourselves, who we wake up as, who, what kind of person we think we are. And so if those are stories and we are storytellers, then that does mean that we have some power to reconfigure, to reshape the way we see things and the way we see ourselves. And I'm not saying that's the only solution. I'm not saying that that is the best solution. I'm saying it is a thing you can do that can perhaps make you feel like you have a little bit more agency in your life. Yeah. Um, are you are you someone who reads Brene Brown at all? No, but I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I highly recommend. I feel like I talk about her in every episode uh, for lots of different reasons. But for the, this particular reason, um, she always talks about like the stories that we tell ourselves mm-hmm. and like the the shitty first draft or the fucking first draft, she calls yep. it. And it's like, OK, but what is the actual truth? Right. And it's and it's it's wild, the power that we actually have. And I, I just I really love that those um there were two two moments that i'm remembering specifically or one one specifically about um you were actually i'm gonna pin that because i want us to talk about your book so let's back up a little bit and so you have an advice column called ola poppy Mm -hmm. and so can you kind of talk us through how um you got to have this column and how the journey from the column to the book Yeah, it's been a wild ride. So basically, I was a freelancer in New York. I was working like two or three jobs at the time. Um, My friend Matthew Rodriguez had recently been brought on as an editor at Into, which was the new editorial site that was launched by Grindr, which is best known as a hookup app, mostly for gay men um, at the time. And they had all these like 
funny play on words for the different titles that they have. So into is itself a play on something that people would often ask each other on Grinder, like into, like, what are you looking for? What do you like to do with another person? Um, and they had this like, so Grinder also rather creepily can sometimes show you how far away you are from someone. So it'll say like feet or miles. And their celebrity profile series was called Zero Feet Away, um, you know, like up close and personal. And I just mm-hmm. thought that was all really clever. And my main ambition at the time was, okay, I'm broke. I don't want to move back to Oklahoma with my parents. I need to make as many checks out of this as I possibly can. I want to do a column that's once a week. The problem was I didn't trust myself to come up with a new topic to write about every single week. Cause that's just a lot of ideas for someone who's already working a bunch of jobs. So I was like, okay, this is where the, t- like the advice column could come in because they supply you with the thing to write about. People will literally send letters to you and you can answer them. Um, so it started out that way, but to offset the sort of um, evil ambitions I had for it, I was like, okay, but I can sort of be funny. I can make it a satire. I would never deign to say like, I can actually help you with your life problem. What I can do is make my little jokey jokes. And the joke is that like, what if Dear Abby was on Grinder? <laughs> that was the whole thing for me. Um, it was meant to be a satire parody advice column. But uh, as I mentioned in the book, you know, when the letters start coming in, they were very earnest. A lot of them tackled really difficult deep questions and I realized very quickly that I couldn't just have the whole thing be a spoof just because you know Grinder is a place where it attracts a lot of people who are looking for something anyway who need company who want to feel less lonely who just want someone to talk to so actually the format of the advice column it was very very uh, symbiotic with Grinder because yeah people just want to have meaningful connection with someone else <laughs> so I got a flood of letters very quickly And reading through them, I was like, I just can't joke about some of these things. Um, So I had to kind of grow up pretty quickly and I had to take my job title a little more seriously. And the rest is really history. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So how how did you kind of make that switch from jokey jokes to being more serious? And did you have like mentors that you turned to and like what was your process in that way? If the book, which has is is an essay collection if it has one central sort of topic or conflict, I would say it's that. The book is me trying to figure out, okay, how would I genuinely help someone? What credentials do I have? What qualifications do I have to help someone else? And the essays are all sort of represent what I see as important life events where I learned something or that left their mark on me or involve a situation that I think another queer person maybe would go through as well. Um, And then me trying to like use those as a sort of uh, resume to be like, okay, I I know this. I went through that. Um, I think I learned from this. But then at the end, sort of still realizing, but all of that doesn't necessarily legitimize you as someone who can tell someone else how to live. So it is sort of like, the book is an identity crisis. It is sort of trying to reach for authority of some kind and trying to wrestle with the idea of being a mentor in a community where a lot of us just didn't have mentors growing up because we sort of had to hide that part of ourselves. We weren't necessarily put directly into community at a young age or anything. We weren't given the resources we needed. I didn't get any sex ed until I was in high school. And even then it did, it took great care to erase anything that wasn't cis straight (laughs) um, sexuality. So the book is very much me trying to reckon with myself and say, okay, how if I were to take this job more seriously, if I were to try to help someone, what do I need to do to accomplish that? And the answer, it's a kind of a spoiler, but it's complicated and it's tricky and it may not end the way you think it would. 
but I, I tried to paint the journey as um, with as much grace and texture and life as I possibly could. Which you do very well. <laughs> um, so as someone who shares um, very little of the same identities as you, mm-hmm. um, I found and saw myself so much in your book. And I know that that is a, a common theme as we've talked backstage yeah. about this, that I'm not the only one who felt that way. And which is why I do this, which is why I love having conversations with people um, is so we can find those common connectors and the common ground of like, we're all in this together, people. Come on. Absolutely. Um, And so one of the things that like really tickled me was the story that you shared about your Tar Heels shirt um, (laughs) trying desperately to fit in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt the same way growing up. And there was this like group of boys who loved duke mm-hmm. and i which i which is also a, the second part that tickled me was how you your connection with duke um <laughs> and so but i remember like i bought a t-shirt and a hat i like i didn't know anything about duke but i was like yep. i so desperately want to be seen by these people um it's just such a familiar feeling to just want to fit in and be seen and to not feel like an outsider and isn't it funny how much of it often comes down to like aesthetics and just trying to signal something to someone else? Like it doesn't even matter that I didn't know what the Tar Heels were. What mattered was what I was trying to say by wearing the shirt. <laughs> it's it's so funny how often it just comes down to trying as trying your best to use someone else's language, <laughs> but not really being fluent in it yourself. Yeah, yeah, which is exactly what you were talking about. You said someone tried to teach you to be a boy and you were doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And I felt so similarly of like growing up and being raised as a girl. And it's like, that's just not who I am. And I don't know how to do this. Um, and so uh, is it is it okay to talk about Patty with you? Absolutely, yes. Um, so Patty's a character, a character, but also a, a human in your life. And um I just, I, that the stories that you shared around Patty um, really spoke to me, which are this person who you saw a connection with and you created a friendship with. um, And then all of a sudden, like turned on you. And I just, it just, I remember for me, like, just to, to share about me to set up for you, which is feeling so scared to connect with um, people because I, I, felt so scared of being outed or someone thinking that I was gay Mm -hmm. and so I tried my hardest to keep up as many boundaries and I just I admired so deeply how you kind of went for it and Mm -hmm. and not even in a sexual way just in a friendship way yeah um and I'm just curious if you can share with us kind of what that felt like to kind of put yourself out there and then kind of the aftermath of that yeah I think I learned quite a bit and the lessons I gleaned from that experience maybe I couldn't apply them until later in my life because I was so afraid of them. Because the way that that essay is very much about how trauma sort of burrows in our brains and it sort of gives us a language, it gives us a limited vocabulary with which we can address certain things. So it sort of shrinks the words that you can use to describe yourself. It shrinks the words you can use to compliment yourself or make yourself feel good or the way you talk to other people. It literally will say, don't speak to that person and don't let them get too close to you because they could end up hurting you. So it's a really restrictive, smothering, protective instinct that happens in our minds. And I I did at first learn the wrong lesson from that. I guess I shouldn't say wrong lesson, but I learned the lesson I took away was like, we can't 
be open with other people because when we try to go for it and when we try to let people in like that, you see what happens, they can turn on you. And it wasn't until later that I realized that most people on this earth are very afraid. They're very scared and fear will make you do things that are unpleasant. They will, it will lead you to hurt people that you shouldn't hurt. (laughs) And it will lead you to self-destructive tendencies that do you no favors in the long run. So what I was unable to do at the time was to see Patty, who was this confident person, this jokester that everyone loved, who was like this most popular kid in class. I was unable to see that he was afraid or that he was insecure because when we're young, it's so easy to fool us into believing that somebody has all this power or has all this confidence or has everything in their lives going perfectly to plan, especially if we, you know, identify as something that could stigmatize us or that could ostracize us, whether you're queer, whether you're non-white, whether it's your body type, whatever, all those vulnerabilities, you can, it can lead you to think, okay, everyone else is on the same page except me. And I'm the one who needs to catch up. But the older I got and the more I revisited that experience, the more I did realize that it wasn't that (laughs) Patty woke up one morning and was like, I want to decide to be evil to this person. That is in fact kind of what he ended up doing. But the motivating factor behind it was that he wanted to make sure that I was a target because he didn't want to be the target. Because if you can put other people down who embody something that you see as wrong or different or other, there is a lot of social capital to be gleaned from that. You can create the out group and remain in the in group. And it's a very weak, very um, fear-based motivation for how you treat other people. And it took me so long to make peace with that because I was like, there's no way that Patty is afraid of anything. Like everyone loves Patty. He's always at the front of the class, making everyone laugh. He's always on the stage, but it's just not the case. We're all more similar than we give ourselves credit for. And we're all very afraid at the end of the day. And knowing that has helped me to reach out to people again, because I think, you know, it's not necessarily about me all the time. People are afraid to let other people in. It's just how we are. And we have to both respect that, but also find ways for our common humanity to supersede that. I want to get everything you just said tattooed. (laughs) 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 That is so beautiful and so true. And um, just, I, I, I feel so similarly to what you just said and um, really have in the last few years have tried to really kind of ground my way of existing in what you just said. And um, I, I used to be a bully in high school. And this was for the exact reason that you just said was if I'm bullying, then I won't be the target. Right. And I fully know that I did that. And I've, I've reached out to every person that I've bullied and I've apologized. And I've said like, this isn't an excuse but here's where I was in that moment. Um, and you didn't deserve the way that I treated you. Um, and cause I just, you know, like you said, we're all struggling and right. it's just, and I think too, like what I didn't want to do with my chapters is be like, here's all the worst things that have ever happened to me in a laundry list. Because I do believe that it's not the case that I've always been the victim of bullying in every instance. I have probably In fact, I know for a fact I have perpetrated harm on other people because that is how harm works. It's a cycle and it wants to perpetuate itself. And so I didn't want to, in the book, just sort of situate myself as like, you know, oh, I was weird and that's why everyone was mean to me and they deserve whatever they have coming to them because they were wrong to do that. It's more nuanced than that because I'm 
certainly capable of a lot of unpleasantness. (laughs) I know that I am, and I know that we all are, and it it doesn't do us any good to pretend otherwise. And so that's why I love writing about the messy relationships that can spring up between two people, because you can so easily shift between the the receiver and the giver of hurt (laughs) in life. Yeah, yeah, it is such a quick, like, flip of the switch, for sure. Um, I love, I pulled a quote from the book, which is the worst things that have ever happened to us don't define us. We're the ones who get to define what those things mean. Um, which I think also just highlights what we were talking about of the reframe and the stories that we tell ourselves. Um, which then the thing that I put a pin in, I'm going to pull it out now, which is the other, the other example was, um, reframing your time with your girlfriend, Rebecca. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of t- talk us through, like that story and your reframe there? Yeah, I would start by saying that um, that was the excerpted chapter that ran in Esquire the other day. And I was so terrified of how people would receive it because the story is basically me leaving middle school where I was bullied really badly, going to high school and somehow, some way <laughs> ending up with this cheerleader girlfriend. And I wanted to portray and paint that relationship for what it really was and not using the popular narrative of like, Oh, well I was in the closet. So it was fake or we were both pretending or, and I think there's also this, this weird casual disgust or casual misogyny that a lot of gay men have about the women they might've dated when they were in high school or before, where it's just like, you know, you vagina is gross. Like it's that sort of language. Um, and I wanted to sort of provide a different way of thinking about it that sort of takes into what my mindset actually was, because it wasn't like I was sitting there thinking, okay, I know that I'm gay, but if I do this, then it'll fix that for me. It's just not, I was too afraid to even acknowledge my sexuality at that point. It's not like I had some sort of deceitful intentions where I was going to be like, okay, this will help me be more of an imposter. Certainly by instinct, I was like, this will help me be normal, but I wasn't using this person completely as like, um, I guess what's the popular term for it, like a beard or whatever they say, (laughs) because it's like, no, when I look at that relationship, I find such genuine warmth and I find such actual, beautiful feelings that I shared for this person and that we sort of shared together. And that's really complicated and it's hard to talk about because we tend to think that we're not really ourselves until we formally come out. And that sort of brings out a lot of questions. Like, what does it mean to be out, out? <laughs> like, is there a, is it a gradient? Is there a moment? Is it an activity? Is it when you start living a certain way? Is it when you admit it to yourself or other people? And so I wanted to really look at my life before I came out of the closet and think, okay, but that kid was living a life. That kid was experiencing things. That kid was in a relationship. And I want to talk about that relationship in a way that doesn't center the desire to pretend like it didn't happen. Yeah. There's um like the gold star gay or the gold exactly. star lesbian. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember hearing so many of my, I almost said colleagues, no, my gay colleagues <laughs> <laughs> talk about that. At the gay factory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Where we make our toasters. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> um, because I know. And, and so I, I really tried um, to, in reading that chapter, like really try to embody the spirit of it and the, what you just described right now. Um, because I know growing up in a gender that wasn't mine, um, I can feel really, um, like it, 
not that it was, um, I have struck, I have, I am struggling trying to reframe it in a way that's positive because yeah. I also was a kid, like also living a life and yeah. had relationships and, um, like physically intimate with people. So I, I lost my gold star status, never had it. <laughs> <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> but I've had friends in the past too try to say like, well, can you reframe it? Cause that's also a part of who you are and who it, who has made you right. And I'm, and it's like, that is true. And I, I also am struggling with that. Um, because it's, it's tough. It's tough. It's, it's really hard, especially when the way you were living was so shaped by compulsory heterosexuality or by misgendering you or by telling you to your face that you are a gender that you are simply not Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is hard to accept those things. And then to be like, okay, but it was just part of my life. And I was still living one because you do want to distance yourself from the pain. You do want to feel it to induct that part of your life as a living, breathing part of who you are is so hard because you were simply not allowed to be who you are back then. And so there is that extent of like, I hate that that happened to me. I want to dissociate from it. Um, So when we talk about like compulsory heterosexuality, it was this expectation on me, especially in my tiny town, that I was going to end up with a woman and that I needed to date women because like my parents met as sophomores in high school. So it was not out of the realm of possibility whatsoever that this woman, this girl that I met in high school would end up, we would end up getting married one day. Um, So it's hard because there's a lot of hurt there and there's a lot of feelings of bitterness there at the world for making you do something or making you think a certain way or making you feel like you weren't correct in your instincts or you weren't correct in identifying your desires or your identity. And it's, it's tough and it's painful, but I, I did want to be like, kind of close my eyes and put my hands in the dirt and say, there's got to be some treasure in here somewhere. (laughs) There has to be, because I don't want to cut half of my life out of my story. Yeah. That's so exactly. I have a tattoo that says learn from everything, which I excite just so deeply really just relate to everything you're saying of like that, the digging for the treasure of like, what positive can I take from this? What can I learn from it? Because it can't all just be pain. Exactly. It can be pain and it is pain. And what else can it be? Right. There's a Um, lot going on down there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I'm curious, uh, even just in the way that you're responding to my questions, you have such a like incredible way of affirming and you are, you're giving advice whether you realize it or not. (laughs) And so I'm wondering like, what kind of feedback have you gotten from folks? And like, do people reach out to you? And I'm curious about all that, all of that. Sometimes they do. And it's always so touching when they do, because um, I think one of the dirty secrets about running an advice column is that it is actually not all about just centering the person who wrote a letter to you, because at the end of the day, it has to function as a piece of writing that hundreds or thousands of people will read. And they need to be able to see something of themselves in the situation and the advice you give. So if I would I would be running a very different kind of column if it was private and I was only answering to one person. That's like a consulting service. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's super different or therapy or something. (laughs) Right. I'm not a therapist or consultant. I am a columnist. And so when I write a letter, I have to sort of bake in a certain accessibility to a lot of different people who maybe don't share that same identity or who wouldn't find themselves in that same situation while at the same time balancing the needs and concerns of the specific person who wrote in. So when someone does write me back to say like, thank you so much, that helped me out a lot. It's such a treat because, you know, that's, 
ostensibly what I want to do. It's it's the cherry on top of everything because I kind of have to think of it in terms of a piece of writing that lots of people will see before I think of it as like, I'm going to fix this one person's life. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to hold. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure, yeah, that the affirmation back from people, it's like, oh, I'm actually... I'm, ha- I'm helping people. It makes me feel a lot better for sure. It's like, oh, you're not content to me. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so so speaking, I mean, again, like I said this in the beginning of just like seeing so much of myself um, in you. So I want to talk about um, your experience working in the Mexican, was it, was it, a, re- it was a restaurant, right? Yeah, in a tortilla, in a tortilla factory. factory. Uh-huh. Um, and just your relationship. Um, so is it Rosa's with Javier? Mm-hmm. And something that kind of stuck out to me was like, what was going to make you a quote unquote real Mexican mm-hmm. and like why you took this job. And because so much of what you talked about, I saw myself in the same exact way, but just replaced like Jewish. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so can you can you talk talk to us about like why you took this job and what that meant to you? Absolutely. So I think there's this tendency of if we come from cultures with a lot of shared pain and trauma the way many Mexicans and Jewish people do. I, for one, when I was younger, thought, okay, it's the pain that will legitimize me. And I think that's a very human instinct because pain has always been used as a bonding agent for people. It's what they use in rituals. It's what people do to affirm their commitment to something when they give something up. I mean, there's like Lent is based on this sort of thing. It's just like, if you are willing to experience pain, you will be rewarded with something that makes you better. Um, And I grew up Catholic, so obviously this idea was super drilled into my head as well, that there's this idea of through suffering, you will gain enlightenment or salvation or something of that nature. And it was very easy for me to apply that to my identity because my abuelos grew up very, very poor. Uh, My abuela dropped out of elementary school to do manual labor. My abuelo was the first in his entire family to get a college degree and was kind of um, ostracized by his family for doing so. And it was very easy for me then, um, my mom, who, you know, their daughter, who ended up marrying a pretty well-off white guy. um, I grew up in a household where we had air conditioning. Our house had two floors. And that, to me, was like peak luxury because I I did spend a lot of time with my abuelos. And I did spend a lot of time thinking, like, who are these alien people who are in my life that I'm related to, but we share so little in common? We don't even have language in common, necessarily. And I think that that led me to this idea of... Um, identity being this very linear thing this thing where it's like okay I have to now go back and experience the pain that my abuelos did because that's what made them who they are it's it's the fact they don't have money it's the fact that they experience poverty it's the fact that they experience racism and a very segregated Texas when they were growing up Um, and when I grew up and I started meeting people who looked a little bit like my abuelos and were the same age but had money (laughs) and big time jobs I was like how is that happening I didn't know that was a possibility Um, obviously there's way more experiences than we think there are when we're a kid and the world is just our little fishbowl Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah I I did think in terms of like if I can just put myself through the ringer I will come out the other side feeling more authentic and all going through the ringer taught me was that at the end of the day I just have different experiences from my abuelos and I have different experiences from other Mexican Americans who I'm going to meet in life and I'm going to just have to be okay with that because I can't just artificially inject other people's experiences into my own and call it a day. I'm piloting my own life, my own body here. And the best I can do is just try to be a better person and help people out who maybe don't have the things I have. 
Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it wild what you learn once you grow up? <laughs> Just yeah. like um, me trying to find my place in Judaism um, as a transgender, gender queer person, like growing up again in a small town, not seeing any kind of queer representation at all. I just didn't see a place for me. And, and even now I'm still trying to like what you said, like you're piloting your own life and your own body. And I'm trying to figure out where I still trying to figure out where I fit in, in the Jewish community. And just because I don't X, Y, and Z other, what other Jewish people do doesn't make me any less of a legitimate Jew. It just makes me a different kind of Jew. And that's really hard. (laughs) It's so hard to accept, especially when I think we tend to think that other people fit better into the way the world is set up than we do and Mm -hmm. I think that when we talk about a little more and we start admitting a little bit more like no actually I don't perfectly fit into this idea because the reality is none of us perfectly fit into any idea that's why they're ideas they're not tangible in that way Um, I think we can we have the opportunity to make each other feel a lot better Um, so in this book I really wanted to say like and here's how I learned how I was actually a Mexican I, I more was along the lines of like I still don't know what's going on there I'm still trying my best here um, but I learned a lot of really important things and met a lot of wonderful people along that journey. Yeah. What's your, do you have a favorite essay? Ooh, yeah. Um, my favorite essay in the book, weirdly enough, is the how to fall in and out of love chapter only like for technical reasons, because when writing about being in love, I was so afraid I was going to be really like soapy and saccharine and over the top. And that my little, <laughs> I usually deal in, there's the pain, then the funny. And I like mixing those things. Um, when you're writing about love, everything is very syrupy and sweet. And so my jokes just made things too sweet. <laughs> so I was just very proud of myself for being able to balance the tones there because I find it difficult to write about times when I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, like some people are like, we need to stop focusing so much on like queer pain or like Chicano pain. And I'm like, no, don't take this from me. <laughs> yeah. Let me have my pain. <laughs> I, I was using that. Yeah. Um, I, I loved what you kind of like mentioned revisiting mushy love songs because you miss being in the closet. Mm-hmm. And I, what are some of the songs that you listen to when you're in those moments? Oh my God, they're so gross. <laughs> <laughs> um, Clumsy by Fergie was a big one for me. The okay. Thing is, like I... <laughs> my uh Mexican auntie took me and my cousins I'm like the only boy in my family by the way so like it was me and all my girl cousins and I was a junior in high school and she took us to go see an impromptu Fergie appearance at a Verizon center in or a Verizon store in Dallas and I waited in the hot Dallas sun for like four hours until they were like okay we're starting to let people in but it's too crowded one of y'all can't go and they were all like oh John Paul's the boy he doesn't need to go and I was like I'm going to meet Fergie I don't care what I have to do I I met Fergie so how um, was it it was it was amazing she was the first celebrity that I've met and I think to this day I'm bad at recognizing famous people out and about in the world um so like sometimes my friend will be like did you know who that was and I'll be like no um, so it's, it feels like the only famous person I've ever met has been Fergie because she was sitting there. They were like, look, it's Fergie from the videos. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> and then she signed my poster and then I went home. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, the first song for me that comes to mind is When a Man Loves a Woman by Michael Bolton. That's a great one. <laughs> Such That's a, a good great one. one. Absolutely. Oh, and his hair. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. good. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's like you, I ran backwards and I was like, I have so many songs that I wanted to listen to at this moment. So if you could just pause this relationship, I have to sort of revisit my old iPod. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm so sad I lost my iPod. Me too. I didn't and, realize how important that would be to me later in life. Yeah. Uh, really important. So if anyone who's when, when anyone who's listening, save your iPods if you save still it, have it. Save your playlists. <laughs> um, there's another quote that I pulled that I just loved, and it's, "What if it wasn't Thomas I had been missing all this time? What if it had been the act of loving, the moving through life while loving, the way of seeing myself while loving, the splendid shapes of love makes." of the world the way it takes the mundane and twists it into something together worthier i hope i wrote that right the, yes. gi- the gist of it <laughs> um again it's another reframe yeah of it's just tell us about this i i just want to hear from you i just it's so beautiful one thing i'm obsessed with is this idea that we could be moving through an objective reality but what we perceive is entirely dictated by whatever sunglasses we're wearing or whatever lens we're seeing something through so the facts of everything were the same it's only that my brain was pumping me up with all these love chemicals and I was just like oh my gosh I my life is so interesting I'm it's so easy to be into me Uh, of course this person's in love with me and I'm in love with him because we're two of the most interesting people in the world like this is what my brain is just my squishy little oatmeal brain is just like pumping through my veins and I just love that stuff because it really portrays for me that we live so many different lives in this one life. Mm-hmm. And if, even if I wanted to, I can't access that way of seeing things right now. I can't just induce it. I can't just choose to see things like that because the experiences and the moment and who I was then and the things I knew and didn't know were all contributing to a way of moving through the world. And I love writing, painting those types of things because it's like you can paint something so mundane but have it be so interesting by just describing the way it made you feel. Maybe it's just like a restaurant sign or it's like a house that you pass by. And I think in that chapter, it's the oak leaf knocker on the, on the front door. Those things become, end up becoming symbols for bigger things. And I just love, love, love that kind of material because it proves that our brains are so wacky and we don't understand them very well. And they can do all sorts of things with this little life of ours. So, and it's helpful too, like if I'm in a bad place to remember like, these aren't necessarily the facts of my life. This is the way I'm feeling right now. And who knows mm. how I'm going to see these same things tomorrow. And it, it, it keeps me hanging on for whatever fun thing might be around the corner. <laughs> yeah. And I think too, it, what, what you just said sparks another part of what you wrote around thinking about as thinking about romantic endeavors into a binary of failure. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and so I'll get to that in a second, but to, to tie it to all together, which is, um, holding ourselves to the uh to thinking about a certain memory a certain moment in a certain way as the end all be all is such a trap and yep. i love how you are, are are switching that and like in this moment this is how i feel but yeah. this isn't necessary and i wish more of us could have the the awareness and the um ability to see things in that way oh and you know like to this day i'm the king of ruining my experiences with expectations like if i go on a little trip i can't help it i start painting all these things that i want to happen in my brain i'm like oh i hope this happens and i hope i get to go on a nice date with so-and-so and when then when those things don't pan out of course you're crushed because you were dreaming about them um that's the other thing about wisdom is that you can dole it out and not necessarily <laughs> live that way <laughs> all day <laughs> all day every day <laughs> um which is i mean i i 
I mean, I know that I'm driving the conversation, so it makes sense that all of these things make sense. But another thing that I pulled from the book, which is you, um, the, you said, we have all of this, these scenarios and secret hopes that we cling to. I think I knew they'd never happen, but I didn't want to find out because finding out would remove the possibility of what if. And I know for me, I live and I have uh, an apartment in what if. Mm-hmm. And it's always, it's mm-hmm. always that. And, and I wonder for, I wonder if it's, I'm just thinking for me of like growing up in a, in a mindset of, I don't even know where I fit in, in the world and I don't belong and I don't see a future for myself, but what if? Yeah. And so maybe that's where I'm comfortable being and yeah. in that sense of possibility instead of reality. And I think that um, all caps, we as queer people <laughs> often rely <laughs> yeah. on possibilities because if we have to sort of defy our realities in order to become more fully ourselves because we can't just accept what everyone is telling us to be because if we were, it would be to give up on some of the most important parts of ourselves. And so it's almost like we have to dream as a survival mechanism. And so we get very used to the idea of making dreams into reality or negotiating our bodies with how we want things to be or negotiating our affections with how we want them to be. And often that's great and that's necessary because if we didn't do that, then where would we be? Um, But also sometimes it can lead us into trouble because it's just sort of like we get so used to living in those abstract waters and we get so used to treading it. And sometimes when things don't pan out that way, it's painful. It's very painful. Um, A lot of my book is about me just sort of like wanting something to happen so badly and then life giving me a completely different thing in return and sometimes it's good sometimes it's bad sometimes it's just different but that's just the way reality moves and it's it can be hard to accept sometimes yeah yeah absolutely um man time flies I'm looking at the clock and um so I, I have a lightning round of questions for you, and then we're going to move into a Q&A with the audience. And so awesome. audience friends, if you have questions, please put them in the Q&A and um, John Paul will be happy to answer speaking on, on his behalf. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> the lightning round um, in the first two seasons of the, the podcast, there were all questions were like super binary. And mm-hmm. so I got the loving feedback of maybe don't have such binary questions. Okay. And so they are now open-ended questions with one oh, binary oh. that I couldn't get rid of. Um, so the first one is if you could name your own crayon, what would you name it? (laughs) I would name it Fanta. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) What's your favorite time of day? Ooh, morning. When I'm awake for it, because it's always a treat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Favorite current queer media representation. Oh, shoot. That's hard. I inhale a lot of weird media. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think about that one. What did I? What have I watched on Netflix? Um, I'm rewatching Ugly Betty and um, Justin Suarez, the the kid, the little gay kid, like her little brother. Oh my god, love him to death. Um, mm. You know, gay Mexican. <laughs> yeah, representation. Exactly. So good. Um, a song that makes your heart soar. Ooh, um, butterflies by Casey Musgrave. Hmm. Not, not Fergie. <laughs> no, I'm going to revisit Fergie tomorrow when I go running. For Amazing. Sure. Uh, favorite way to travel? Not airplanes, huh? Listen. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? By train, because I get to just sit on my little cart and have my laptop open. And it's like I'm sitting in a coffee shop, only I'm on wheels. Amazing. Uh, favorite quote? Favorite quote. 
Woof. It's another hard one. Um, I really like when my abuela said, no. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember her saying that quite a lot. And I think about it, even today when I have to say no to something and I feel weak and I feel like I can't say no to it. I, I conjure her voice saying no in my head. And it's like, no, I can do it. I love that no. so much. Um, and the, the infamous binary bagels or donuts. Ooh, I'm going to say bagels only because they provide more practical utility for me on a daily basis. Like I eat way more bagels than I do donuts. And I would be so sad to see donuts go, but I simply can't dispense with bagels. They're, they're too much of my routine. <laughs> That's the right answer. <laughs> there are no right answers except that one. Except that that one. Yeah. I mean, bagels. I mean, who's doing it like bagels? <laughs> yeah, I know. There have been a handful of people through the years, and uh, it's disappointing. But sometimes it's because they're gluten free. But so it's like, I see, all right. I see, I see. <laughs> we'll allow it. Uh-huh. Um, and tomorrow, June 4th, is National Donut Day. So. It oh might God. be a day to switch. Maybe my we can be versatile. The donuts, the donuts are going to come by and beat me up tomorrow. <laughs> like I heard what you said. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, Krispy Kreme is giving away free donuts. So okay. anyone, go go get it if you're listening live. <laughs> if you're listening on the re- recording, you missed it. Um, all right. So now we're going to pivot to audience questions. Um, and the first one is, Hola, Poppy is your first book, and it follows your advice column form. If you were to write another book, do you see yourself writing in a different style? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm kind of working on my next book right now. And I'm not going to lie to you and say that the agenda isn't to get as far away from digital media as I possibly can, just because there, there are cheaper ways to break your heart than working in digital media. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to just get more into book publishing. And I do believe my next book will be more of a fictional novel type bent. Um, But I'm not against doing more essay collections. Uh, I love writing essays. That's sort of the form that I first fell in love with, fell in love with. So there'll be more. It's just, I want to get a little bit weirder, get a little bit more experimental next time. Amazing. Well, definitely keep us posted Mm -hmm. uh, because I love the way that you write and the way that you think. So I want to, I want to read it. I'm a, I'm a Stan as the kids say. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know if that's right, but. You get the drip, the, the gist. <laughs> um, do you consider yourself a writer first or advice giver first? Definitely a writer. Um, and I've always felt that way. Like I didn't really grow up thinking, God, I can't wait to be an advice columnist. I always thought like, I can't wait to be a writer. And to this day, the advice column format has always been more of a conduit for what I want to say and how I want to say it more than it has been the primary focus on what I do. Um, I'm just so in love with the written word. And I think that the advice column just happened to be a medium that allows more marginalized people access than other ones do. So like, I wasn't going to be trusted to write these big, long think pieces for like the big newspapers or anything, but (laughs) Grindr would let me make a satirical advice column. And historically, you will see that it's the case that I I started researching advice columns as the more I did them because I wanted to, you know, be less of a fraud. Mm. But In the past, it was one of the few avenues where women could actually become household names with their writing because it pivoted. It started out with only educated white men, like many things, unfortunately, do. But then it started being thought more of as um, dealing with issues of the domestic, the etiquette, the emotional. And so, okay, that's women's work. And so women were able to enter this field of writing and become famous because they weren't allowed to write in other areas of the newspaper 
Um, and I think it's always just been a place where people are welcome. And I was one of those people who needed somewhere to go, who wanted to make a name for himself. And we happened to find each other and we've just been sort of perfect partners for the past four years or so. I love that. That's beautiful. Um, okay. Do uh, Can you talk about the rabbit in your headshot? <laughs> I sure can. Um, that rabbit's name is Baba the Rabbit. Um, I wrote on Twitter, I was like, I need a giant rabbit to take a picture with because my um, main opening chapter of the book is called How to Lose a Rabbit and it features um, a rabbit in it. And I sent a picture to my book editor of the album cover for Oral Fixation by Shakira where she's holding a baby. And I was like, okay, so I want this, but I'm Shakira and the baby's a rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, I'm very done with you actually, but okay, fine. (laughs) And I was like, cool, Um, put out an open call for a giant rabbit. I stressed, please make sure the rabbit is large uh, in Brooklyn. And Baba answered the call. So I went and took a photo shoot with Baba and now he's my favorite part of the book, I think, like just the picture of me holding this white rabbit with this creepy blue eye in it. It felt so in keeping with my themes and my personality. And I'm just obsessed. Also, like, I almost wept when I held Baba for the first time, just like a perfect creature in every single way. <laughs> yeah, this is for those of Baba. you watching <laughs> on the live recording. And they um, dropped it. I'm actually wearing these like really big flowing um, corduroy slack type things. It's a much longer, more vertical picture, but they just like cut it because you're not allowed to be an author and be interesting, I guess. Pick one. <laughs> it can only be one thing. <laughs> um, okay, so outside of Ugly Betty, um, what is one of your favorite new pieces of queer media you've seen, read, listened to in the last year? Hmm. Um, I'm so weird in that most of the media I consume is on YouTube and it's from like these random creators whose names, whose real names I don't even know. Um, so I watch this, I I regret not knowing her channel name or her name, but it's just like this clearly like (laughs) Zoomer with a camera set up in her bedroom and she's like, I'm going to now talk about this serial killer from 1960s and I just find (laughs) it so fascinating. (laughs) Is what she talks about, um, is it like true stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of like history stuff, mostly with a true crime bent. But my media habits are not healthy. I spend a lot of time just accepting whatever the YouTube Explore page gives me. Um, I watch a lot of like video essays. I watch a lot of analysis stuff. Um, I watch some like uh, storytelling format stuff about like, oh, here's these creepy stories from Reddit only narrated. I used to fall asleep to those. Um, so in terms of like what's actually going on in the culture, like have I seen Mayor of Easttown yet? No. Do I want to? Yes. It's just very hard to get me to sit down and watch something. I don't know why it's so hard, but I'm just like, no, I can watch this YouTube video. It's two hours long, but it's it's less of a lift, which isn't even true. <laughs> hmm. What is wrong with my little brain? I don't know. <laughs> you um, like what you like. I like what I like. What can I say? And that's all it is. What can I say? Um, okay, so it looks like we have time for one more question, which is, can you please talk about the visual artwork that you do? Yeah, um, I've always done visual art. It's just that I've done it sloppily and without any real goal in mind. So when I was a kid, I really wanted to be an artist and my mom really helped me out with that. So she bought me all the sketchbooks and like the pencils and she let me read a bunch of biographies about these adult artists who were living very adult, <laughs> mature lives. But I read about them as a kid. 
And I thought I was going to do that, but at some point in my life, writing became the more practical um, partner for me. And I was like, okay, I'll just do that. And I didn't really rediscover drawing in any meaningful sense until the pandemic really, like I had started my print shop before the pandemic and I was doing very simple stuff, um, just sort of messing around, but it was during isolation where it was just me, my iPad, my Apple pencil that I really started taking it more seriously. And I'm very happy with it. I'm happy that I have that outlet because I definitely would have lost my mind um, if I hadn't had it. And I think that I wasn't really living my full life before I was doing art as well, because I have so many visual sort of ideas in my head that I want to get out. And it's so frustrating to have ideas that you can't yank out of your head and put somewhere physically for me anyway, that is a very uncomfortable position to be in when I can see something so clearly, or I can feel its vibe so clearly, and I just want to make it happen. But that negotiation between the idea and the physical reality is so fraught and difficult and requires so much skill and practice. Um, but that's where I am now. I'm still learning. I'm still practicing, but it's such a joyful part of my life. And yeah, I'm working on a few drawings now that I'm really excited about and I hope to do it forever. That's, drawing is something that I hope I never leave behind again. Yeah. Um, yeah. That outlet piece, whether it's writing or drawing or whatever it might be is so, so important. Mm-hmm. Um, John Paul, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experiences. Uh, it's been a true pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for having me, Dubs. I'm so happy to be here. And gosh, the book will be out soon. <laughs> yes, yes. Please, everybody go buy the book. And uh, maybe Jason can come back on and remind us um, how we can get an autographed copy. Um, hi, Jason. Hello, absolutely. Hello. Uh, check out our friends at uh, The Strand. The link is in is on our website and is is in your confirmation email and we will also send a follow-up email where we will where we will include the link as well uh to get a copy of Ola Poppy from our friends at the strand that is autographed by uh, our friend John Paul Bremer. Amazing. John Paul, thank you for coming out. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming out. Hey everyone, it's your host, Dubs Weinblatt. Thank you so much for listening with an open heart and an open mind. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, please do so so you don't miss an episode. And don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps. And we want to hear from you. We want to know your coming out story. Head on over to Thank You For Coming Out's Instagram page at Thank You For Coming Out and click the link in our bio. There's a form there where you can submit your coming out story either anonymously or with your name. And you could have the chance to hear your story read out on the Thank You For Coming Up podcast. We're so happy that you're part of our community and we want you to know that your story matters. Thank you for coming out.